obviously the highlight of Easter and the Easter story is the resurrection of Jesus itself. Uh, the dramatic events of, of the angel rolling away the stone and the empty tomb and the shock of the disciples. Uh, but there are so many other things that happened on that day as well that are so important. And um, one of the very, actually the very first thing that Jesus does after his resurrection, after appearing to some of the women, was he, uh, he goes and he conducts a seven-mile-long Bible study in the Old Testament to two very discouraged disciples. Uh, and that teaches us something about Jesus and the heart of God. And in that story, it's, it's a beloved story because of it, it shows the character of Jesus to us in so many ways. But it also is the beginning of Christ teaching us, teaching his disciples the meaning of the resurrection. So we're going to read today, we're going to study the story of the road to Emmaus. Uh, and in it, we're going to learn um, some deep things about the meaning of Christ's resurrection. So if you would please, are you, if you're able, please stand. Uh, this is out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is Luke chapter 24. I'm going to start at verse 13 through 35. Let's listen intently together to God's inerrant word. Now that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was mighty, uh, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is towards the end of evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. 
And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. True story. I uh, uh, met a theologian at one point. I had to, was able to meet a theologian that I was uh, listened to and read quite often. And he told me this story about how he was invited to attend uh, as a guest lecturer uh, a Hebrew seminary, a Jewish seminary. And as part of his, uh, as part of his, while he was there as a visiting professor, he was treated to this lecture, this debate. Uh, that the seminary was having uh, concerning the nature of the four messiahs of Jewish theology. And here is basically how the debate went down. Here's the, the basics of what they were, what they were, what they were saying. The first, first messiah is Elijah, who comes to proclaim as a herald the coming of the kingdom. Second messiah, messiah they call the messiah ben Joseph, or the Mashiach ben Yosef. And he is a suffering Messiah. He is a Messiah uh, that is going to come. Uh, he's connected with Isaiah 53. He's connected with these passages of somehow the Messiah suffering. And he is going to come and wage war against the forces of evil and be killed while in combat against the enemies of God and God's people. In various uh, manuscripts and, and Jewish manuscripts, including Dead Sea Scrolls and others, the Talmud say that this Messiah will cry out to God in his death throes, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, uh, Another book says that the death of this Messiah will begin a period of great calamities for Israel. Uh, Medieval Jewish scholars uh, both claim that this uh, Messiah, the Messiah ben Yosef, would somehow rebuild the temple, uh, and this Messiah would somehow, he would uh, only come if needed, based upon the spiritual state of Israel. Third Messiah is the Messiah ben David, the son of David. Uh, and this is the Messiah who will come at the time when God resurrects all of the dead at the last judgment, and he will usher in this great messianic age of universal peace. And the fourth Messiah is a Messiah called the righteous priest, who is associated with Melchizedek, and will also come at the same time as the Messiah ben David uh, and rule as, and, and as the high priest over all of God's people. And now during this debate, as they debated the nature of these four messiahs, some of the contested elements of it were, uh, number one, according to some Jewish scholars, this Messiah ben Joseph seemed to somehow be an essential, uh, an essential part of the redemptive process whereby the death of this uh, Messiah, the blood of the slain Messiah, somehow was going to pave the way for final salvation. And another issue that was being debated was, according to some scholars, this Messiah, the Messiah ben Joseph figure, was really not a separate Messiah at all. In fact, his association with the northern tribe of Ephraim was really just talking about him being associated with Israel as a whole, and so it was quite possible that both the Messiah ben Joseph and the Messiah ben David were in fact the same Messiah. And then for a couple of hours, 
they sat and debated with each other about how these puzzle pieces might fit together. Now you can imagine, maybe you can imagine, some of you are, are, have your jaws dropped, some of you don't. These Christian theologians, my, the, this man and another one were sitting there slack-jawed, just wondering how and if they would even begin to interject into this conversation. Now, if, you're, if you understand, if you're familiar with Christian theology, you know what, what I just described. All of those elements are perfectly pointing to Jesus from the Old Testament and are part and parcel of the fulfillment that Jesus accomplished on the cross in his death uh, and the promises of the second coming where he is to come. Uh, and so... Uh, Maybe you're familiar with that, maybe you're not, but for those of us who are familiar with Christian theology, it's stunning to see how it is, and this is what was so stunning about it, how it was possible that they could have every piece of the puzzle and yet not be able to put it together, no matter how brilliant these men were, and they were brilliant men. Now, why does that have to do, what's that have to do with our story? Let's 2,000 years prior to that debate, there was another almost, uh, almost a very similar, almost exactly the same debate was taking place on the road to Emmaus as these two men walked home from Jerusalem. Uh, as they walked home, the two disciples, so defeated uh, and so discouraged by the day's events, really the text says they were debating with each other everything that was happening uh, and one, one of the reasons why this story is so beautiful is because it shows the compassion of Jesus and how he comes and consoles these, uh, whoever they were, maybe, maybe two, two men, maybe a man and his wife. It's, we don't know which, who the disciples were that were walking along the road. But we see a lot of the compassion of Jesus in it. But we also, as, if, as in every other place in the Bible, see that underneath uh, this beautiful story, this narrative, there are deep theological truths that the writer, uh, that the Holy Spirit is teaching us through it. And the first one, the first important truth is that the meaning of the resurrection must be spiritually revealed. The meaning of the resurrection must be spiritually revealed. Look at everything the disciples knew. These two guys, as they're walking home to Emmaus, look at everything that they knew about what had happened. They knew that Jesus was a, was a prophet uh, and that he was doing mighty deeds. That mighty means divine. He had the power of God working in word and deed. They knew he was delivered up to death and crucifixion. They knew uh, that the chief priests and the rulers of the people had delivered him there. They knew and believed, or they believed, that he would be the Messiah to redeem Israel. They knew it was the third day and the tomb was empty. Uh, they knew that there was a vision of angels that were announcing to him the resurrection. And they knew that that was then validated by other disciples who went to the tomb and confirmed that in fact it was empty. And yet they had all those pieces of the puzzle together and yet what was their response? They stood still looking sad. Why? Why couldn't they put that together? I mean, we look at that, it's almost funny. I mean, we look at it and say, well, you see, this is one of my favorite lines of Jesus in almost the whole New Testament when he goes, what things? 
Someone was playing with them. Someone was playing with them. Why couldn't they get it? Why weren't they able to put those pieces together and understand resurrection, salvation for the world had just happened? Well, a couple reasons. Maybe the first one is from their own words. They say they were looking to Jesus to redeem Israel. That's a very specific word. Redemption uh, in that context meant to be liberated at a cost. And at the same time, they would know that since God doesn't owe anyone anything, how would that cost be paid out? What would the cost be? How would that actually work for God to liberate Israel at a cost? And part, at least, of the problem is that prior to the cross, uh, no one could fathom what that cost might actually be. It was too big. Uh, It's not that the prophets weren't clear, as Jesus tells them. Everybody got the Messiah Ben David stuff just loud as a bell. Conquering king uh, brings us to glory. Everybody got that and was really clear on that. But as of one theologian named F.F. Bruce, who calls, he talks about the dark side of the prophets, which I love that the dark side of the prophets, which is all the Mashiach or all the Messiah ben Yosef stuff, all of the suffering, all the Messiah is going to be killed, all about the Messiah is going uh, to die and suffer. And that's a lot harder to stomach because it spells out uh, and what they weren't able to grasp and what's so hard for all of us to grasp is that nothing less then the death of the incarnate God would be the cost to cover the sins of mankind. We still have trouble with it. We still have trouble to this day with that idea of the atonement. People are confronted with this idea that Jesus, God incarnate, had to stand in our place and receive the full wrath and cosmic justice of God that we deserved Uh, in order to free us from our sins. And so we come up with all sorts of other ideas about what the atonement might be. Maybe God was just trying to make a moral example of how much he loved the world. Maybe it was a little less than that. It's so hard for us still to grasp the fact that that was what the cross accomplished and that that was what was necessary in order to save us from our sins. The bigger reason, bigger reason why it was so hard for them to understand is because the true reality of the resurrection, supernatural, spiritual knowledge can only be accessed by a revelation of spirit. Listen to what they say. This is how they talk about Jesus speaking to them on the road. They say uh, their hearts, when he's giving the Bible study, their hearts were burning within them. Uh, It talks about Jesus opened the scriptures to them. And the clincher is that very same night in the next story, it talks about Jesus. These same, these guys, they get up, they run back to Jerusalem, even though it's dark. They're so excited to tell the other disciples about what has just happened. And Jesus appears to them. And again, it says, and then it says, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Up to that point, these guys were clueless. Even though Jesus 
had told them repeatedly, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again from the dead on the third day. And they all thought he was talking like a parable. None of them got it. They're all terrified, hiding out until Jesus comes and opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Why is that? Why is that what it took? It's because this truth can only be spiritually revealed. It's supernatural knowledge. It's different than regular knowledge. We are, uh, at heart, a lot of us, we are in the bubble we live in. We're still rationalists, we think. Give me a book. Give me my brain. Maybe a microscope. Give me enough time. I'm going to study it, and I'm going to figure it out. Maybe some of you have approached the Bible in that way and found it to be lacking or not found it to be enlightening at all. And then the reason for that is that if we approach the Bible, if we approach trying to understand the Christian faith uh, with a critical spirit or with a spirit that doesn't recognize this element of supernatural revelation that must take place, if we don't approach it with a humble heart asking God, to reveal himself to us, it'll be lights out. And it happens all the time. However, if we do approach God in humility, if we approach him in prayer and we approach him asking him to reveal to us the reality of the scriptures, supernaturally he will do that. Now the good news in that is letting us know that God can and will break through our own stubbornness uh, and often, and that is the reality of what happens. God breaks through our stubbornness to reveal himself to us. But still, from our perspective, looking to God, we need, without a humble posture, approaching God and asking him to reveal himself to us uh, without that spiritual input, we might as well be reading the phone book. And that's not just for outside the church, too. Within the church, that's true of us, too. If we approach the text with no intention of obedience to what it says, we have no reason to believe that God will illuminate our minds to that truth. But if we do approach it with a willing and humble spirit, he will illuminate our minds to the reality of what he says. So if it's true that the Bible is spiritually revealed, if it's supernaturally revealed to us, when we understand that, what is it that it says? What does the Bible say? The second point, the second big truth that this tells us is that the gospel is God accomplished. The gospel is God accomplished. What does that mean? Well, maybe, maybe you've tried to, you're looking at the Bible, maybe you've considered the Bible and you think this is this big book uh, it's from so long ago, and maybe you've been taught, uh, you know, it was written by, you know, ignorant farmers and sheep herders from an ignorant culture, uh, and not just that, but it was so far from us. It's so distant from us in time and in culture and in language and in translation in so many ways that there's just no way possible for us to understand what it really says. Uh, and that's a big obstacle that some people run across. How can we even trust? How can we even know what it is that the Bible says? Uh, part of the problem for that is that we tend to be children of our own age. 
meaning that whatever uh, the prevailing, whatever the prevailing or uh, philosophies about life, uh, whatever the prevailing philosophies about literature, about reason happen to be in the world around us, we tend to uncritically adopt uh, when it comes to trying to understand everything, including the Bible. However, if Jesus existed at all, and we know that he did, and if we have a reliable record of his life, and we do, then what Jesus says the Bible is all about is probably a good guess. It's probably a good starting point for understanding what the Bible is all about. And what does Jesus say the Bible is all about? Well, listen to verse 25. Jesus talking to the disciples. He says to them, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning of him, or things concerning himself. This is what he just said. Uh, he just said that from the very first pages of the Bible, from the book of Genesis and all the way on through the Bible, all of the stories of the Bible all are really talking about Jesus, about what he will do. From the very first pages of the Old Testament, Revelation uh, is like an organic, continuing, escalating uh, more and more detail being added, revelation of who Jesus was going to be and what he was going to accomplish. For example, right in the very beginning of Genesis, in chapter 3, uh, in the middle of, after mankind had fallen in sin, God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and he promises them that one of their descendants would come and save them, would make right everything that they had just made wrong. Uh, and, they, and then, when they believe that, Adam believes the promise of God that, uh, that one of their descendants, the Messiah, would come. God slaughters an animal and then clothes them with the skin of the animal to show them in this little seed form that they are going to be saved by the death of someone else and they are going to be then clothed in the righteousness of that person and that was what equals salvation. It's tiny little seed form right in the beginning. And then as we go on, as the stories continue, more, a little bit more detail is added. A little bit more detail is added. It's like the rings of a tree. In the very beginning, inner concentric rings are little, uh, little seeds about Jesus, little seeds about salvation, little truths about Christ's righteousness covering us, little tiny truths about someone else dying to pay for our sins. And then as the stories go on and on, they become more clear and more clear and more clear so that when we get to Noah's Ark, we see that Jesus' cross becomes a refuge for all who seek rest. And like Moses, Jesus leads his people out of spiritual bondage through the wilderness of sin and into the promised land. Uh, and like the priests in the Jordan River, Jesus inserts himself in the stream of God's wrath. And like David, Jesus becomes our champion defeating the enemy and saving God's people from slavery and death. And like Jonah, Jesus voluntarily gives himself up to be swallowed in death to rise three days later to proclaim salvation to the nations. And on and on and on and on and on like that it goes. Every one of those old stories in the Bible that we teach our kids as they're growing up, they're not 
moral stories. They're not stories about obedience. Ultimately, what they are is stories primarily about what it is that God is going to do to save the world, to save us. And that's the Bible study that Jesus gave these two guys on their way home from the discouragement of the cross. Can you imagine that? Being those guys? The whole time. They grew up in this environment that was constantly telling them the reason Messiah hasn't come is because we are not good enough. The reason Messiah has not come yet is because we continue to break the law and we must figure out a way to perfectly keep Torah. And when we do that, that will, that will spark the revolution and Jesus, the Messiah will come and save us. And they saw their hope dashed, their hope failed, and then Jesus comes along the road and he says, let me tell you what those stories are all about. It was always about this. The Messiah was always going to come and suffer and die. The Messiah was always going to come and pay the penalty for your sins. That was God's plan A, to save the world. And that's what those stories were all about. And their hearts were what? Burning. Why? They were burning within them because they were understanding for the first time the magnitude of God's love and getting their very first inklings of the understanding of what grace really is. And grace undermine, or under, underlies all of Christian theology. Grace is what the gospel is all about. Grace is not mercy. Mercy is getting something you don't, you, you know, you don't deserve. Grace is not getting what you deserve and getting something you don't deserve because Jesus took our punishment that we deserve and Jesus gives us his victory. Mind-blowing on the road home. Now look, the gospel that's supernaturally revealed to us means or talks about the whole Bible, the whole thrust of the Bible is that this is primarily all about Jesus, what God has done for us. And what does that mean? It means it's all about Jesus, not all about us. It doesn't mean that we are not to respond in obedience to what Christ has done for us. It just means that that obedience is always an act of worship. It is never uh, part of us. It is never ever part of us becoming right before God because Jesus has done all of that for us. Uh, he has, through his cross, delivered us from the penalty of sin. He is now, through the power of his spirit, delivering us slowly from the power of sin. And we look forward to the day when he returns to deliver us from the presence of sin altogether. The third thing, the third big truth that this teaches us, this story teaches us, is that the gospel is refreshed through worship. The gospel is refreshed through worship. What is it 
what is it that makes any story great? I mean, there's a lot of things that make stories great. A great plot, a great quest, great characters, great heroes, great, uh, great storylines and narratives. But one thing that makes stories great is that they carry with them a deeper understanding. There's a deeper meaning that's transmitted through the narrative story. You learn something about it. You learn something through the historical narrative in the text. There's also a supra-historical theological truth that we learn from these stories in the Bible. And this is also true in this text here. The historical level, it's the end of the day Jesus has, has been resurrected from the dead. In his compassion, he's talking to these disciples on their way home. Uh, they come home, finally they get to their house, and they strongly invite Jesus to come in. Don't miss that. They strongly invite him to come in and have a meal together. And then this happens at verse 30. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Why was it? Why did they recognize him right there? Why didn't they recognize him on the road? Why didn't they recognize him while he was teaching them the Bible study? There's all kind of guesses at this. You read through the commentaries. People, some people want to say, well, they saw the nail marks on his hands, but they've been seeing his hands all day. Maybe it was you know, just God just to show us that was the moment to reveal Jesus to them. But I think there's something more to the story. Listen to the elements of what's happening in this story. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. The disciples are together. And Jesus shows up in the midst of them and he gives them, essentially, a seven-mile-long, Christ-centered teaching from the Old Testament. Preaching, telling them how Jesus is the center of every story of the Old Testament. Testament and the new and then the spirit illuminates them to this understanding and then they get to the house and they have the meal we're at we're completely against all Jewish custom the host doesn't break the bread somehow Jesus is the one breaking the bread and he lifts it up he gives thanks he breaks the bread and in that moment their eyes are opened and they recognize him and that word doesn't mean they just see his face and go, Jesus. It means more than that. It means it's a revealing of knowledge. They not only see who he is and understand who he is, but they also they understand in a fuller sense who he is and what he has done, and they get that in the breaking of the bread. And so listen, this is what I'm saying. An undercurrent of this story, Jesus himself is teaching us all of these elements of worship. And the promise of it is that in and through these elements of worship, his spirit will be present with us. He will be illuminating us to his word. He will be supernaturally revealing to us deeper truths than our minds have the capacity to understand. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we break the bread, there's something special that happens in that moment where a fuller understanding of Jesus is revealed to us, and in that we are strengthened. Brothers and sisters, Jesus himself is teaching us these elements of worship uh, and, 
is sign and, and, and promising us all of these promises when we gather together and do these things. So what does that mean for us? It means this is the day that we celebrate the resurrection, Easter. It wasn't actually today. That's a whole other story. But this is the day the church celebrates the reality of the resurrection and the reality, uh, the central fact of history and our redemption, being liberated from sin and death by the great cost of the death of God. And yet, in the midst of this story, he's teaching us these patterns of worship that every week, every week we celebrate this. Every week we get to come into Christ's presence. Every week Jesus promises that his spirit will be with us. Every week he promises that he is going to reveal to us uh, and open our minds to supernatural truths that we would not otherwise be able to understand. And he promises us that in the breaking of bread, that he is here with us, empowering us, strengthening us, revealing a deeper knowledge of who he is through these seemingly simple rituals that he's given us. There is deep, deep spiritual power that he has given to us. And we don't have to just wait once a year to do it. We get to do it every week. That's why we call our church resurrection. It's the central hope of of the Christian faith, uh, but it's something every Sunday we get to come together and experience the power of it. So I want to encourage you and challenge you. Come every week for this. Come every week to hear these things. Come every week to receive these promises from Christ and to participate in the Lord's Supper because he promises us that he is with us and he promises to strengthen us, and we need that strength to get through this age. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your power. We thank you for your promises. Lord, we would have never, ever come up with this religious system on our own. And we need to come here every week, Lord, because the way our minds work, the way our fallen hearts influence us, the way the pressure of the world around us influences us, we are continually drawn away from reality and we are continually drawn away uh, into the delusion of satisfaction in other things or into the lie that we must make ourselves presentable to you or into the, or the condemnation of the devil uh, that you are rejecting us or you are displeased with us. We need to come here every week to be reminded that, that we are accepted and loved in the beloved. We are accepted in Jesus. That he has made us righteous. And that we stand before you in love as children, even right now. So we thank you, Lord, that we have Sundays. We thank you for our worship services. We pray that you would give us the presence of mind and that your spirit would draw us here to this deep well and this spiritual feast every week in Jesus' name. Amen.